0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to CorbettReport.com. Of course, I'm your host, James Corbett, and I would just like to take a moment today to introduce all of you to the latest weapon in the Corbett Report info arsenal, and that would be this, the brand new Corbett Report Data DVD Volume 3. 2010. So for those of you keeping track at home, this is of course the third edition of the Data DVD set that we're releasing here at the Corbett Report. The first volume represented 2007 and 2008 and the second 2009. This is 2010. So for those of you who don't know, the Data DVD series is a, as it ...would sound like a data DVD, that is a DVD that you play in your computer DVD drive, not in your regular DVD player, and it contains the files of every single podcast episode, interview, article, and video released on CorbettReport.com in the year... well, in this case, in the year 2010... And in the previous editions of this series, we had the 2007-2008 edition, the 2009 edition. Both of those editions were able to fit onto one dual-layer data DVD each, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of six uh, gigabytes on on each of those discs. But 2010 is when I really started expanding operations here at the Corbett Report. So this is a two-DVD set. It has 15 gigabytes of information. So that is, I, I haven't actually counted how many hours of media is on here, but it is in the hundreds of hours of media. That includes, again, every podcast episode, every interview, every article, and every video published on CorbettReport.com. Now, it is important for me to stress right up front that, of course, because this is just the sum entirety of what was published on the Corbett Report in 2010— all of this information is 100% completely free to download and is currently there on my website. There is nothing on here that is not already freely available for download. So a uh, purchase of this DVD is, of course, not uh, requisite for anything. You, the, all of the information is 100% freely available. But if you want all of the information in one place, if you have a slow connection and you want to be able to uh, have all 15 gigabytes without downloading all of it, if you want to have a hard copy in case the internet or the Corbett Report gets pulled at some point in the future, this is what this is for. So uh, as of today, I'm going to be putting up the links on the uh, uh, support tab of CorbettReport.com so you can go and purchase the DVD. And uh, this is going to be, uh, once again, like the other data DVDs, it's a 5,000 yen uh, purchase, which is roughly equivalent to 50 American dollars in in the current exchange rate. And once again, this is hundreds of hours of media and... Once again, this is of course all freely available for download, so if you don't have the money for this, please don't buy it. Please go and download this for free, but if you want to help support the work that I'm doing, you can purchase this DVD. And uh, just as a side note, you'll notice, for those of you uh, who are watching this video, you'll notice that, oh, this is a nice handy-dandy little uh, uh, DVD case that I've made. It's uh, somewhat professional looking, and uh, and of course the DVD labels as well. So uh, uh, not only have I made the uh, the case for the volume three, but I've also retroactively gone back and made uh, cases for volumes one and two as well. And, oh, look at that. They're all nicely color coordinated. How cool. So uh, if you purchase the DVD, it will look something like this, and you'll be getting it in the mail in a couple of weeks, and uh, the first uh, the first few orders have already come in uh, through the subscriber newsletter, because as always, subscribers get a 25% discount, that's uh, 3,750 yen for subscribers, and that uh, link is in the subscriber newsletter from last weekend. So, uh, without further ado, this, uh, this podcast, basically, we're just going to be introducing you to the, uh, the data DVD, and in order to do that, we'll just, uh, play some of the representative material that's on here, again, representing some of my work from the year 2010. And we're going to start with what has always been the heart and soul of the Corbett Report: the podcast. And we're going to go and uh, listen to one of the many, many podcast episodes that are on this uh, DVD. This is episode 123: Meet Smedley Butler. And uh, this is an interesting episode for me because in the course of creating these uh, podcasts, there are there are times when I make a podcast and I feel that I just didn't quite get it right, that I didn't say it the right way, that people won't understand what I was trying to get at, that I didn't use the right clips or didn't put them together in the right manner. And sometimes it just feels a little bit disheartening like that. And I can say every single time I have ever felt that way about the podcast, I, without fail, have the most positive feedback about those particular episodes. And this is exactly one of those episodes. I had the feeling that it just didn't come together the way I had hoped. It, I didn't quite say it the way I, I wanted it to be said. I didn't think people would uh, resonate with it. And it turned out to be an extremely popular episode, and a lot of people, in fact, some I got lots of feedback feedback from people who started listening to the podcast because of this podcast episode. So once again, this is just one of the many podcast episodes that's available on this new data DVD. Let's just take a listen to a clip from episode 123 of the Corbett Report podcast, Meet Smedley Butler. But right now, I'd like to revisit a doc audio documentary that we listened to a little bit of back in episode sixteen. And this comes from the BBC, the Blair Broadcasting Corporation, now the Brown Broadcasting Corporation, but in the light of the nine eleven Whitewash on the Conspiracy Files and the Seven Seven Whitewash and the Osama bin Laden whitewash, and the whitewash of Dr. David Kelly's death, and all the various whitewashes and cover-ups that the BBC has participated in in recent memory. I vote that they hitherto be known as the British BS Corporation. But at any rate, the BBC aired a documentary, an audio documentary, exposing a little bit of truth about the business plot, and naturally trying to fling as much excrement on that established historical fact as the BBC possibly could in order to try to cast doubt on it or make people think twice about talking about it. But undoubtedly, they do expose a little bit of the truth. So let's, let's take a listen to this, what ultimately amounts to a whitewash of the business plot, and take a look at a very important formative incident in the life of Major General Smedley Butler. Now rest assured, I choose my words wisely here, and I'm not just throwing out the term whitewash or cover-up, because I think it's self-evident that when someone follows up a statement like this...
1: If these long-forgotten accounts can be relied on, I seem to be looking at an attempt to set up a fascist government in the land of the free. A coup that could have toppled one of America's most revered presidents pave the way for a possible alliance with Italy and Germany, and thereby change the complexion of World War II.
0: With a turd in the punch bowl, like this...
1: But just what was this plot? Who were the Wall Street interests? Or was this nothing more than a moment of paranoia from a national media not renowned for its self-restraint?
0: before blithely admitting that the entire incident is documented historical fact like this.
1: But I already have the official statement released by that committee when it reported back to Congress. Its members clearly had no doubt that a fascist coup was in the offing
0: then I think it's pretty obvious to anyone with any media savvy what they're attempting to construct here. And that is a whitewash. But at any rate, there are some interesting nuggets that do slip through the corporate control, or should I say the governmental control in this case. It's all propaganda coming from the same mouthpieces in the end, isn't it? So, as some of the listeners out there may already know, or as some of you may have been able to gather from those clips... The business plot involved a planned fascist military coup in the United States in the 1930s to overthrow President Franklin D. Roosevelt, which, by the way, is just more of the left-wing, right-wing of the New World Order bird of prey, sort of infighting, and did not represent the fact that Franklin Roosevelt was really a man of the people by any means. But at any rate... This fascist coup plot was being organized in the 1930s and, as you guessed it, the plotters turned to Major General Smedley Butler as one of the men they thought they could turn to to entrust with a key part in the plot, but Smedley Butler was not playing along. So in order to get some more details about Butler's role or lack thereof, in this plot and some of the figures involved in this scheme, let's turn to that BBC documentary and take a little bit of a listen to it, keeping, of course, our filters on and our shields up for all of the propaganda that the BBC will be throwing at us.
1: The most important testimony in these records is from a senior commander of the U.S. Marines, Major General Smedley Butler. Major General Butler came before the committee of his own free will. He had, he said, been contacted by a well-connected New York City broker called Gerald Maguire. Maguire met Butler a number of times and slowly revealed his audacious plan. He and his financial backers wanted Butler, a highly decorated war hero, hugely respected by rank-and-file soldiers, to rouse an army of World War I veterans, many of whom were angry that a bonus they'd been promised had yet to be paid. The idea was that the general would use these men to help seize the White House, just like Hitler and Mussolini had used their private armies to bully their way into power. At the time, Butler staunch defender of democracy went along with the plan, but he was secretly appalled. Inside the National Archives, I was joined by writer John Buchanan, who has made a study of right-wing America in the 1930s.
2: These super wealthy capitalists essentially wanted to pose such a threat to Roosevelt that he would basically step aside. If FDR would not cooperate and step aside, they would execute
1: him, kill him. Smedley Butler's testimony shows the plot was at an advanced stage. McGuire said to me, I went abroad to study
2: the part that the veterans play in the various setups of the governments that they have abroad, like France, and I found just exactly the organization we are going to have. It is an organization of 500,000 super soldiers here in America. Well, I said, I suppose you get these 500,000 men in America. What are you going to do with them? He said, did it ever occur to you that the president is overworked? We might have an assistant president. He went on to say that the position would be a secretary of general affairs, a sort of super secretary. He said, you know the American people will swallow that. We have got the newspapers. We will start a campaign that the President's health is failing. Everybody can tell that by looking at him, and the dumb American people will fall for it in a second.
1: Now in his 90s, Jules Archer was a young man of 18 when General Smedley Butler gave his testimony. He remembers just how idolized the man still was by the tens of thousands of veterans who'd been under his command.
3: He was a fantastic anti-war general. He was very popular with the uh, soldiers and sailors. He fought for them, and he fought for their rights. That was one of the reasons he was selected for the plot, because they knew he could raise a paramilitary army of veterans who would
1: follow him because they they believed in him. It was here at the Association of the Bar in central New York City just a stone's throw from Wall Street that the case against the plotters came to a head. The chief witness, Major General Smedley Butler, walked up these steps, past the giant stone pillars that tower above me here, and through the rather elegant doors Even today, all the offices on either side of me, behind the large wooden doors, are packed with people who are, are going through today's important legal cases. But back on Tuesday, the 20th of November, 1934, this was perhaps the most serious case the country could possibly have faced. And the room where it all took place is up several flights of stairs in what's known as the supper room. One of the most important witnesses who came here was Paul Comley French, a journalist Smedley Butler took into his confidence after the conspirators had tried to recruit him. French had also met Chief Plotter Gerald Maguire at his Wall Street offices, and he recounted their conversation to the committee.
2: We need a fascist government in this country, he insisted, to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all that we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do it are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize a million men overnight. During the course of the conversation, he continually discussed the need of a man on a white horse, as he called it, a dictator who would come galloping in on his white horse. He said that was the only way, to save the capitalistic system.
1: But it was Smedley Butler, war hero and soldier's friend, who exposed the plot he continued his meetings with Maguire until he gathered enough information on the plotters to bring the evidence before the McCormack-Dixing Committee. But given that there were no recordings of these meetings, or letters written by Maguire outlining his plans, how can we be sure that the General didn't exaggerate or even make up the whole story? Jules Archer, who went on to study the lives of Smedley Butler and Representative John McCormack, is convinced the plot was real. He remembers talking to McCormack about his time as chairman of the committee that investigated the case. McCormack
3: was a veteran politician. He was an advisor to Roosevelt and other presidents. He had a heavy Irish accent he told me General Smedley Butler was one of the outstanding Americans in, in our history. I cannot emphasize too strongly the very important part he played in exposing the fascist plot in the early 1930s, backed by and planned by persons possessing tremendous wealth. And there was no doubt about it that uh, McCormick was absolutely convinced that Butler was telling the truth
4: on the Nazi in the United States. This
2: is
1: in this early radio archive, you can just make out the other co-chairman, Representative Samuel Dickstein, warning Americans to be aware of the threat from fascist forces from within.
2: We have repeatedly unearthing evidence to define the Nazi government here as the most dangerous threat to our democracy that has ever existed.
1: And the central character of the plot, the plain-speaking Major General Smedley Butler, was caught on early newsreel from the time, explaining his part in exposing the plot.
2: I talked with an investigator for this committee. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organisations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic
1: institutions. So Smedley Butler remained adamant that he was the target of a fascist plot, and there was never any doubt either in the mind of committee chairman John McCormack that the forces of fascism were gathering to storm the White House. But who was going to fund the coup? "'Even with the backing of 500,000 veterans, "'a plot of this sort against the most powerful government on earth "'needs money as well as muscle, and an awful lot of it, too. "'Well, according to Smedley Butler, "'this was where the big business moguls "'and Wall Street brokers behind the coup came in. "'They, he was told by Maguire, would soon step out of the shadows "'in the form of a newly created lobby group. "'Soon after he made this promise to Butler,' The American Liberty League was born. John Buchanan.
2: McGuire said, well, you're going to see in the next few weeks in the press, this organization is going to be created that's going to front for the whole thing, and we're going to stand up for the Constitution, and we're going to stand up for our troops, and so on. And lo and behold, about two weeks later splashed all over the major newspapers of the time especially in new york and washington the creation of the american liberty league
0: so who pray tell was behind the american liberty league well only some of the biggest names from wall street and the world of commerce in 1930s america including the dupont family who was one of the major funders of the all but also the leaders of U.S. Steel, General Motors, General Foods, Standard Oil, Birdseye, Colgate, Heinz Foods, Chase National Bank, and Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, among many, many others. So what became of this plot and the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, which was looking into it? Well, as one might well imagine with a congressional inquiry into such a sensitive manner, it ended up going absolutely nowhere. And ultimately, the final report of the Congressional Committee re- read, quote, In the last few weeks of the committee's off- official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. No evidence was presented in this committee had none to show a connection between this effort and any fascist activity of any European country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. The committee received evidence from Major General Smedley D. Butler, twice decorated by the Congress of the United States. He testified before the committee as to conversations with one Gerald C. Maguire, in which the latter is alleged to have suggested the formation of a fascist army under the leadership of General Butler. Maguire denied these allegations under oath. But your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler with the exception of the direct statement suggesting the creation of the organization. This, however, was corroborated in the correspondence of McGuire with his principal, Robert Sterling Clark, of New York City, while McGuire was abroad studying the various forms of veterans' organizations of fascist character." So, long story short, the committee looked into it, found out it was absolutely true, brought absolutely none of the accused before the committee to answer for this activity, with the sole exception of the man that General Butler had direct contact with, Gerald C. McGuire, who denied all knowledge of the plot. Surprise, surprise. And there it pretty much ended. But although the plot had been exposed briefly and then covered up again and consigned to the dustbin of history from whence it would not be resurrected for another several decades, General Butler, at any rate, had been personally affected by what he had personally experienced in this plot. And I think it was quite evident that he was quite shaken up by what he had just experienced because the McCormick-Dickstein Committee issued its final report in early 1935, and later that year, General Butler was to pen the pamphlet for which he is perhaps best known today War is a Racket. Once again, just one of the many podcasts that are available on the New Data DVD Volume 3. And let's move on to the next category of media that's included on these discs the interviews. And of course, we're conducting interviews here on a regular basis. And. Uh, Some of them are absolutely fascinating, including one that I conducted with someone who is always a wealth of information, always fascinating to talk to, although somewhat difficult to secure for interviews from time to time. So when I do get them, it's always a treat. I'm referring to none other than F. William Engdahl of engdahl.oilgeopolitics.net. And back in January of 2010, I had the chance to interview him about his book, The Gods of Money, talking about the economy and uh, where things were heading at that time. And I think a lot of it has proven to be quite prescient. And he's talked in great detail and with great, uh, great eloquence and uh, factual information to back it up about the ways that the banksters have controlled uh, the world economy and thus the world itself in many different ways. And this was brilliantly articulated by him in his book. And I hope we captured a bit of that in this interview once again from January of 2010. Let's take a listen to a short bit of that interview with uh, F. William Engdahl. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 21st of January, 2010, and today I'm talking to F. William Engdahl, a writer, researcher, and analyst whose articles are widely published online at such sites as globalresearch.ca, and he and his books can be found at engdahl.oilgeopolitics.net. Mr. Engdahl, thank you very much for joining me today.
4: No, thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's uh, it's been one year now since Barack Obama became the 44th president of the United States, and it seems we're at a far enough remove from the election that people now have the necessary space to sort of take stock of what this administration is actually about, instead of what it claimed to be about during the campaign. And it's now becoming, I think, increasingly obvious to even the least politically astute observers that Obama, regardless of what his p- personal beliefs or ideas are, is merely subservient to the interests that put him into power in the first place, and more people are willing to take a critical look at the direction this administration is taking the country. So, uh, Mr. Engdahl, what do you think of have been the defining characteristics of this administration so far?
4: I, I think it can be summed up quite quite easily, and that is the uh, the interest groups that made Obama the president. There's no one since perhaps Abraham Lincoln, who was assassinated for his... Uh, deviance from the program uh, with the greenback issuance and various other things after the Civil War, no American president comes close to the White House unless he makes a pact with the powerful uh, interest groups that uh, that dominate policy in america and Obama is no exception. I think uh, the best way to understand obama and i I wrote this much to the dismay of many of my readers uh, early into the campaign when I looked at who who his advisors were and who his financial backers. <laughs> that is that uh, Obama is nothing more than, uh, than Bush chaining in sheep's clothing, if you will, old wine and new bottles. Uh, the powerful uh, vested interest needed a new face, a new uh, image to put on their policies, not new policies. They, uh, I think they're uh, systemically incapable of changing uh, the course of policy. They're so deeply into it. Uh, a disaster course that they they can't even uh, perhaps even see it themselves, but uh, from outside, one can see it quite well. The uh, Obama administration, he has done more to put key people from Citigroup, from Goldman Sachs, from Wall Street, what I call the gods of money, into every single decisive power position, including Treasury Secretary Geithner, who drafted the legislation back in 99 and 2000 when he was assistant secretary of treasury under larry summers uh, and robert Rubin. before that he drafted the legislation to deregulate the banking system repeal glass-steagle which was set up during the great depression in the 30s and to open the door to the off-balance sheet derivatives that created this uh, multi-trillion dollar catastrophe in the in the u.s financial system uh, i'm just Finishing uh, the publication, preparation for a new book called *The Gods of Money*, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and it's a it's a stark title, but it really describes, you know, this this whole uh, uh, scheme that was was laid out by the establishment in in the early 1940s during World War II. That has now come to an end. What will replace it? That's unclear. But uh, Obama, his ties to the military-industrial complex. Uh, he has not even changed the face of the defense secretary that was there under Bush, Cheney, uh, Robert Gates, a longtime family retainer of the Bush family, uh, as, as CIA director and various other things. So uh, the agenda is the same. Uh, the America Incorporated, if you will, uh, the privatized uh, uh, American century is, is on an automatic pilot, and it's going uh, simply like the Titanic down to the bottom. So uh, that's my take on on what the Obama administration is about. It's failed. It's failed, and every day, uh, whether it's the Haiti earthquake rescue, where he sends in the Marines instead of emergency help, and they occupy the airport and turn away uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, emergency aircraft because uh, uh, who knows what, they want to establish military control over Haiti, and the Haitians uh, would rather prefer to get fresh drinking water and and, uh, emergency medical help. So that that defines the Obama administration,
0: I think. Well, I I think you're certainly right to define this administration in terms of its greater context, because I think it's almost a a bit of a red herring to really identify this administration with Obama specifically, rather than with the the Wall Street interests that that you identify there. And, of course, uh, a continuation of of foreign policy and and the military-industrial complex, as you you mentioned, the uh, continuation of the, the Secretary of Defense, for example. So it, it certainly is uh, just part of, I think, a, a much larger story. And if we're talking about the uh, the meltdown of the economy, of course, this is something that, that really had its genesis um, in, in decisions that were made decades ago, if not really the foundation yep. of the, the modern economy back in 1913. So so let's flesh out some of that history and, and, and how we came to this point of the death of the American century.
4: Okay. I think a good place to start would be to start with... Uh, what was the original idea or concept of the American century and it started actually in a formal sense in 1939 before the uh, the German tanks had even rolled into Poland and and World War II was at least nominally declared by England and France against uh, Germany, the Third Reich. The uh, 1939 there was a uh, top-secret project initiated at the New York Council on Foreign Relations, the private think tank of, of, if you will, the U.S. establishment. And that project had the name The War and Peace Studies. The head of the project, or the leading uh, figure in the project, was a a geographer, an American geographer, president then of Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, named uh, Isaiah Bowman. He had been around with Woodrow Wilson during the Versailles Talks and advised Wilson on what the critical uh, issues were in terms of balkanizing different countries, what interests America had geopolitically in uh, getting certain levers of power and and so forth. And the 1939 War and Peace Studies project was quite simply, well, first of all, important to notice that it was financed by the Rockefeller Foundation. The Rockefeller brothers were then emerging. They were still in their... uh, uh, early 30s, but they were emerging as the heirs to the powerful uh, Standard Oil Trust of, of John D. Rockefeller. And the four, actually four brothers took political uh, decisions. The four brothers emerged as the most powerful family on the face of the earth uh, after 1945, the Rockefeller family. So what was their agenda? They calculated in '39 already that the British Empire was over; that Britain would come out of the war, Great Britain, uh, bankrupt and a defeated, has-been uh, global empire. And there were only two contenders, as they saw it, for for global space: the United States of America and Germany. They cared not a whit about whether the, uh, and this is true, uh, Isaiah Bowman was a quite blatant uh, anti-Semite and, and racist. They cared not a whit about whether uh, Hitler and, and the Third Reich uh, had different human rights policies or not. What they were concerned about is that German industry had strategically placed itself in the center of Europe, in Eurasia, and uh, were they to successfully conquer Russia, they would be in a position to dominate what uh, the father of geopolitics, the British Geographer McKinder, Alfred McKinder said in 1904, uh, actually 1919 during Versailles, uh, he said if you control the power that controls Central Europe, which is Germany, Poland, France, and so forth, that power has the ability to dominate the heartland of Europe, which McKinder meant by Russia. And the power that dominates the heartland can don- dominate the world island, which is all of Eurasia going, going down through China and India the Indian subcontinent, and if the power that dominates Eurasia or the World Island, as he called it, can dominate the entire world. So America took, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, explicitly took the uh, geopolitics of Mackinder. They even invited him to write a an essay in Foreign Affairs, their magazine, in 1943, uh, shortly before his death, about the emergence of America as the heir to the British Empire. And they simply laid out a a schema. They called it the American Century. Henry Luce of Time Life magazine, the founder of Time Life, who was part of the Yale Elite University Circles of the Establishment. Uh, He proclaimed it the American Century instead of the Pax Britannica. And what they had in mind was an American domination of the world, an American hegemony. But they said explicitly in, in their confidential studies We will not make the mistake that the British and the French made with their empires. We will not call ours an empire. We will proclaim that we are liberating oppressed colonies. We are extending freedom. We're advancing the free enterprise market system and democracy. And under that rubric, we will be able to take over the world because there's so much pent-up frustration with the oppression of, of uh, British imperialism, French imperialism, Portuguese, Dutch, uh, the Europeans in general, and uh, that very well describes what happened in the in the post-war period. So that American century, the the core of it, uh, was defined by Wall Street when they wrote the uh, the rules that became the Bretton Woods system, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the later the uh, General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, or today the World Trade Organization. And what they did was set up under the guise of United Nations or multinational or supranational organizations, the seat of the IMF is directly there in Washington. That's no accident. The land for the United Nations headquarters in New York was donated very generously, and they made a fortune off the uh, tax write-off and the appreciation of real estate in the east side of Manhattan uh, was donated by the Rockefeller Brothers. So that gives you an idea this was the american empire under the name of the american century and its basis was identical to the basis of the british empire namely extend and go into the far reaches of the planet and plunder enough to support the metropolitan base of the empire the united states or increasingly small and smaller enclaves within the united states uh, washington uh, parts of Manhattan that have become so uh, fabulously expensive to have an apartment that only the uh, multi-multi millionaires can afford to buy a, a, an apartment in Manhattan these days. So that American century depended on plunder. It plundered Africa. It plundered uh, Latin America up through the 1980s and the uh, the Third World debt crisis, so-called. Uh, and after that, then uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, they plundered Eastern Europe in the 90s. Uh, Tried to loot everything that wasn't bolted down and even things that were bolted down through the IMF, by the way, the International Monetary Fund. And then they went from there to the uh, plundering of the East Asia tiger economies uh, South Korea, Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, and so forth. And they used hedge funds like the hedge fund of George Soros Quantum Fund, uh, Julian uh, Robertson of Tiger and, and Jaguar Funds. And those hedge funds got credit lines, and this is the unpublished part. They got unlimited credit lines from Citibank, from Chase Manhattan, from J.P. Morgan, uh, and so forth. And the whole operation was run, uh, according to all reports that I've accumulated over the years, the Asia crisis was coordinated by the U.S. Treasury and U.S. Intelligence to essentially break the tiger economy model and make them satraps dependent on the IMF and dependent on the U.S., it succeeded in part but not in whole and uh, the problem now for the, that that uh, american century is after uh, 30 years of opening up of the the largest potential economy and the largest cheap labor force in the world namely china the chinese have uh, reached a point of self-sufficiency although they're still quite dependent on the us for many things but enough of a point of self-sufficiency that, like uh, the expression was in Japan uh, during the end of the 80s, the Japan that can say no, China is beginning to uh, feel its weight in the world and and become the China that potentially can say no. So these are physical limits of plunder to prop up the debt structures of the American century, the debt structures of Wall Street banks and, and institutions. And at that point what will come afterwards, Obama has virtually no choice, no American president can turn this, this uh, mammoth super tanker around other than to declare a nationalization of the 19 or so money center banks that are at the core of this problem, and uh, to take over and run like, like they did in Sweden in the, uh, in the beginning of the 90s with the Securum. Uh, nationalize the the problem banks and uh, cut them down to size and turn them back to uh, commercial and industrial lending instead of uh, speculation and uh, credit default swaps and other derivatives that are are just a glorified scheme of, of plunder.
0: Once again, the always insightful F. William Engdahl in just one of the many interviews that I conducted back in 2010. And moving along to the next category of media that is on these discs, we're going to look at the articles. Uh, Once again, every single article that was published on CorbettReport.com is available on these discs as well, including all of the guest-posted articles, but also the articles that I wrote, including this one back from February of 2010 on an issue that is always, unfortunately, perennially relevant, and uh, especially so on a data DVD set that in itself, is one way to shore up against the possibility of widespread internet censorship. This article from February 2010, The Rising Tide of Internet Censorship. Will Recent Successes in Fighting Internet Controls Be Enough to Stave Off Tyranny? Quote, The focus is back on internet censorship this week as a pair of articles from Time Magazine and the New York Times came out almost simultaneously advocating for licenses to operate websites. These articles were skillfully skewered by Paul Joseph Watson as lame attempts to shore up a disintegrating establishment media in the face of a blogosphere that is increasingly replacing them. The articles follow on calls by Craig Mundy, Microsoft's chief research and strategy officer, for an internet licensing system. Introducing the idea, he said, we need a kind of world health organization for the internet. Evidently unaware of the ongoing investigation into the WHO's role in manufacturing the H1N1 pandemic hoax to line the pockets of big pharma, Mundy added that an international internet authority should be given the same kind of authority that the WHO has in dealing with a pandemic. When there is a pandemic, it organizes the quarantine of cases. We are not allowed to organize the systematic quarantine of machines that are compromised. These calls are worrying because they represent only the latest instance of influential figures proposing increasingly tyrannical controls on free speech on the internet. The Obama presidency has seen an increase in hype over cybersecurity threats, with the influential CSIS think tank having written white papers proposing cybersecurity as a key issue for the 44th president. As we reported last July, CSIS argued for minimum standards for securing cyberspace because voluntary action is not enough. Shortly after Obama took office last year, Senator Jay Rockefeller introduced a Senate Bill S-773 that would give the president the power to declare a cybersecurity emergency and shut down the Internet. The bill would also require network administrators in the private sector receive licensing from the federal government after taking a federally mandated certification program. During committee hearings, Rockefeller went so far as to say that it would have been better if the Internet had never been invented. In November of last year, it was reported that an anti-counterfeiting trade agreement, ACTA, being negotiated by the world's leading economies, would force ISPs to cut off subscribers who were found to have shared copyrighted content on more than two occasions. Recent reports indicate that this proposal was not discussed at an ACTA meeting last month, but the so-called three strikes rule has already passed in France. Earlier this year, it was revealed that Obama's information czar, Cass Sunstein, had blamed the blogosphere for creating, for spreading anti government sentiments and advocated that the government actually employ people to infiltrate online communities and spread information favorable to the government in an effort to destabilize them. As remarkable as such a proposal may seem from a high ranking government official, it is only one aspect of an official Pentagon strategy to fight the net as if it were an enemy weapon system. All of these proposed and numerous other stories we've reported on in the past represent only the latest attempts to stifle free speech on the Internet. Although groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation have been fighting such moves for a long time, the explosive power of the online community in derailing the carbon eugenics agenda and exposing the Federal Reserve has awakened many to the nascent medium's potential and its value. The value of the Internet is directly tied to freedom of speech a principle that is opposed solely by the establishment media who thrived for decades in a virtually competition-free era before the rise of the Internet. As one commenter on on the Time Magazine puff piece calling for Internet licensing notes, there is no grassroots movement anywhere in the world calling for government intervention in the Internet. It is not broken. It works too well. That is a problem for tyrants. As with everything related to the internet, however, the collaborative efforts of concerned citizens in opposing internet censorship is paying off in positive developments. The newfound awareness of the internet's power and importance is raising awareness that online liberties are in fact fundamental rights that cannot be taken away. Even China was forced to back down from an internet licensing scheme, exactly like that proposed at Davos, because of public pressure. A draconian Australian law that would have required all online political comments to be accompanied by the commenter's full name and address is likely to be repealed by the Attorney General. Whether or not these individual successes in fighting back the approach of online tyranny will ultimately derail the establishment's agenda remains to be seen. It depends largely on public outcry over the loss of online liberties becoming a genuine grassroots movement. End quote. Well, unfortunately, since the, the penning of that article over three years ago now, unfortunately we have seen that trend not only continuing but accelerating in many ways, and we've seen such things as the ISP six strikes law being implemented and other such uh, moves towards that type of censorship that unfortunately we've seen the calls for, for from uh, the uh, usual suspects over the past several years. And uh, the, again, this is something that we've been documenting at great length here on CorbettReport.com. And uh, in recent times, we've been concentrating more on the types of solutions that will be the only solutions that will ever fu- fully and, and ultimately be able to get around the types of government censorship on these networks that ultimately the government created uh, through the DARPAnet, the ARPANET, which became the internet and which they control the backbone of and which they spy every piece of business bits and bytes flowing through those main uh, uh, data trunks in uh, in the United States. Um, the only way around it, of course, is to start looking into such things as wireless mesh networking and other such ways of creating our own alternative structure, like so many other things. But of course that's a matter for 2013, but on this disk in 2010 you can find out more about the internet censorship issue as it stood at that time. And moving along to the final piece of media that's on this, uh, this DVD set. Once again, hundreds of hours of media, and uh, that's every podcast episode, every interview, every article, and every video. So the videos, of course, include all of the videos up on the YouTube uh, Corbett Report channel, um, including uh, all sorts of New World Next Week editions uh, uh, and all of those types of videos. But also uh, special occasional videos that were produced in 2010 as well, including, for example, the highly popular The Meaning of Austerity video or the highly popular When False Flags Don't Fly, which recently had a bit of a resurgence after the Boston bombing and re-trended on YouTube um, in recent months. Uh, but on this disc, of course, you can also find such things as some of the episode videos that I did. Back in uh, 2010, I did a few episodes of the podcast that were also videos, including my 9-11 anniversary episode for 2010, which was released around the ninth uh, anniversary of September 11th, and that was a mammoth two-hour episode of the uh, the podcast that featured interviews with with Dr. Robert Bowman, and Richard Gage, and Anthony Flamia, and Luke uh, Rudkowski and others. And it was a massive undertaking to put that uh, podcast episode together, and to also make it available as a video. But I think... In the end, it was quite worth it because it did help to spread that message even further. So uh, this was called 9-11 Truth is Still the Issue. Of course, it is available both in audio and video forms on the data DVD. Let's take a listen and a look at the first few minutes of that podcast episode. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to episode 144 of the Corbett Report podcast, 9-11 Truth, is still the issue. And I'm sure that my long-term listeners do not have to be told that 9-11 truth is still the issue. 9-11 truth is the issue for ending the wars of aggression that have wreaked such havoc on this world, and so far resulted in the loss of thousands of Americans and over a million Iraqis, not to mention the scores of Afghanis and Pakistanis that the Western media finds too unimportant to even tally. 9-11 Truth is the issue for exposing one of the largest swindles in history, the $2.3 trillion that Donald Rumsfeld had pronounced missing from the Pentagon's coffers on September 10th, 2001, the day before the attack, on the most heavily defended building in the world, that left the very office that was investigating those missing trillions smoking in ruins. 9-11 Truth is the issue for unraveling decades of manipulation of foreign terrorist assets in calculated strategies of tension that have left thousands of dead bodies in their wake, all directly attributable to the machinations of intelligence agencies. 9-11 Truth is one of the few issues that gives any hope at striking at the true root of the system that has acted so concertedly against the interests of the people and resulted in the erection of a control grid to watch over the populace for the benefit of the Plutarchs, the well-connected. And the banksters. In short, 9-11 truth is one of the most important issues with which we can possibly hope to press forward even now, nine years after those horrific events unfolded. And if there is any glimmer of hope to be had, it's in the fact that by and large 9-11 truth is winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the public. More and more people are waking up to the reality that they have been sold a bill of goods with the 9-11 commission and that the official conspiracy of that day is false. Just one trivial indication of that that came very recently here in Japan in a website called Japan Today which ran a poll asking the simple question Do you believe Al-Qaeda was responsible for the attacks on 9-11? In this particular non-scientific poll, fully 46% of the respondents indicated that they were unwilling to say that Al-Qaeda was in fact responsible for the attacks with the vast majority of that 46% believing that they in fact were not responsible. As I say, this is a trivial example, but it only serves as further confirmation of the dozens of polls over the last several years that find time and time again that the majority of the public suspect they are being lied to about what happened on 9-11, and that the overall majority or near majority of New Yorkers, Americans, and the global population believe that the U.S. government was complicit in those attacks. Yet more examples of how the public are waking up to the inconvenient truths about 9-11 present themselves whenever people are allowed to freely ask questions of one of the controlled mouthpieces of the official 9-11 story. Granted, this doesn't happen frequently, but when people are allowed to ask questions unscreened, the the results are often indicative of the fact that very few politically informed citizens believe what they've been told about men with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world. One of the few major media venues to allow such a format is C-SPAN, where government officials and ex-officials are often brought on for unscripted and unscreened Q&A sessions with the general public. Michael Chertoff's appearance on C-SPAN some months back is well worth a watch for those who haven't seen it yet as an example of this type of overwhelming adherence to truth amongst so, so many in the public. Another great example came very recently when Michael Sheehan, an ex-counterterrorism official with the NYPD and ex-Clintonite, appeared on C-SPAN to take questions on the so-called War on Terror.
1: John in
5: Quincy,
3: Illinois. Hi. Yes. Uh, There's a woman by the name of
4: Jane Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, and she witnessed uh, five people in Oklahoma, explosion down there and they built that building. And uh, there were two military men wiring up she called uh, yellow sticks of butter, which was C4 plastic, they found out later. Right, right. What's
0: the point here?
4: The point is, why isn't anything done about this? If you go to Infowars.com, you can see a YouTube picture of it. So what are you suggesting is that the
5: U.S. military blew up Oklahoma City? No, I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just saying, there's a lot of odd things, just like the the investigation of 9/11. Six six of the ten commissioners said it's a cover up, and three of the attorneys. Great, um, conspiracy theories. They abound in everything, um, and I, I often talk to Americans that people who complain that overseas, uh, many of the Arab world think that the CIA or the Mossad, the Israelis, blew up the towers on 9/11. I, I remind my friends that criticize foreigners for having conspiracy theories that we have them here. Conspiracy theories are a natural thing to try to explain the unexplainable. How do these horrible things happen? And in fact, most of the investigations, congressional investigations, on Oklahoma City, on 9-11, I think have been done very professionally. If I thought there was anything wrong with it, I'd be screaming about it, because I'm not trying to protect anybody other than the American people from terrorist acts. And I I think those investigations, I've studied them in great detail, were, were pretty thorough. He comes from Pittsburgh, Greg, Independent Line. Hi. Hello. Um, I was listening to
3: your guest, and now I'm even more concerned about the people you have on here on the on the air. He said that he uh, studied the 9/11 and the Oklahoma City bombing uh, investigations, and he thought they were done so well. Well, there were people that were on the, on the um, committees that admitted that they were thwarted and that they didn't have
5: the funding. You know, so if he's saying this, this is disturbing me. You know, did you have a comment on that? I've spoken almost all the 9/11 Commission members, and I think they were generally satisfied with the report. At least they, of course, they had complaints about certain areas, perhaps not having enough time or enough funding, or uh, certain areas. Of, but the general contours, the general principal findings of the report, I don't think any of the members had a major problem with. And I, I, I know virtually all of them. I was interviewed by them extensively they had stacks of my documents that I wrote when I was in the government that I think they generally got the story right was it perfect with be complaints and grumbling perhaps but I think generally what they outlined happened on 9-11 is what happened and the same thing with Timothy McVeigh and his his band of three people that blew up the uh, government buildings in Oklahoma City Elizabeth and Liberty uh, St. Louis, Bill, Democrat, you're on with Michael Sheehan Yes Mr. Sheehan, how are
3: you doing today? Good. Uh, I'd like you to comment since you're a terrorist expert why don't you comment on all of the thermite that was found at the World Trade Center in the dust? And if you want to get at the terrorist issue, why don't you deal with the apartheid
5: state of Israel? Well, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the dust of the World Trade Center, but I know there's a lot of questions and conspiracies about what happened there. I think it's pretty much what it was, a couple airplanes uh, driving into some big buildings that unfortunately created a perfect storm of heat and fire and they collapsed. Do you, are you surprised at the level of suspicion about 9-11? No, I'm not. Why? It's, t- it's typical. Uh, we, we typically, we, not only Americans, but people abroad, almost always put a conspiracy theory on something. The murder of President Kennedy. I think there are many, many Americans who think that the Warren Commission was absolutely wrong it's been looked at over and over and over again I believe it probably got it right do I have questions about Oswald and Ruby and of course it's, it's, it's unexplainable how this can all happen but at the end of the day I happen to believe in what it is but many many Americans can't accept that 9-11 other big events it just seems to be a natural phenomena both here in the U.S. and certainly abroad, even worse abroad, the conspiracy theories are, are much more deep and, and worse outside the U.S. Time for a couple more calls with Michael Sheehan. We're talking about preventing domestic terrorism. Elkridge, Maryland, John, Independent Line. Hi. Good morning, Mr. Sheehan. Hi. I would like to just name a couple people, and if you can
3: tell me yes or no if you are familiar with these people, and then have a follow-up. Okay. Um, Major General
5: Albert Stelperbein, um, John, go ahead, list your people, ask your question, and then we'll get a response. Okay. It's Colonel George Nelson, Lieutenant Colonel Shelton Langford, Commander Ralph Colston. there's 200 more military people at a site called Patriots Question 9-11. I was going to ask you if you were familiar with that site, and if not, you and everyone listening to this should definitely check it out. Thank you very much, John, another conspiracy theorist. Yeah, and a lot of people question it. And uh, there, again, if I thought there was something unusual about 9-11, I would be saying, sitting here today talking about it. I have no agenda to protect anybody.
0: To be sure, it is extremely hardening to see an establishment mouthpiece being grilled so thoroughly on the lies that perpetuate the myth of the all-pervasive terrorist conspiracy that we're facing. And given that the lapdog media has, been, it has done its dutiful best to keep the public in a controlled war-on-terror paradigm with staged distractions like the Ground Zero Mosque controversy, it represents quite a victory for the people against the multi-trillion-dollar military-industrial-terror media complex that goes to such pains to stifle independent thought. However, it's important to keep in mind that the 9-11 truth movement to the extent that it constitutes a movement with all of the attendant problems associated with such a concept, it's important for us to keep in mind that it is possible to win a battle and yet lose the war. It's possible for 9-11 Truth to win the battle for the hearts and minds of the people, but lose the war of affecting actual change in the system that made that attack possible, or achieving true justice for the victims of September 11th. As we stand here now on the brink of the ninth anniversary of 9-11, we find that yet another year has come and gone without a new independent subpoena-powered investigation into the the attacks, with no real end to the wars of aggression waged worldwide in those attacks' name, and with no help for the sick and dying 9-11 responders from the very government that admittedly sentenced them to death with their lies about the quality of the air at Ground Zero. Now, I'm not here to be maudlin or demotivational, but it's important to be realistic about what has been achieved and what can be achieved. Rome was not built in a day. Neither will it be deconstructed in a day. But still, the seeming lack of progress on these key issues can be used constructively as a basis for reflecting on the state of 9-11 truth and where the movement should be heading. All right, friends, just the opening of 9-11 Truth is still the issue. One of many, many, many videos that are on this uh, 2DVD set. In fact, the second disc of the 2DVD set is comprised of nothing but videos. Almost 8 gigabytes of video. They're in MP4 format, so you can pop it on your iPod or mp3 mp4 player of choice your video player of choice whatever it is quite easily you can also watch it right there on your desktop once again a two dvd set the data dvd volume three now available for purchase through corporatereport.com if you uh, are able to support the work if not it's all available there for free anyway so once again uh, thank you for the people who have already ordered your copy i will be sending these out later this afternoon to all of you who have already sent in your orders and for those who haven't ordered yet of course, it will be available there on the support tab of CorbettReport.com, or even better yet, if you're not yet a subscriber to the newsletter, you might want to consider subscribing and get that 25% discount on not only this DVD, but every DVD that uh, we have for, for purchase at CorbettReport.com. That's going to do it for now. Of course, we'll be back with some more uh, videos later on this week and uh, the new podcast podcast episode, uh, excuse me, uh, is coming out, meet John Kerry uh, on Friday. So look forward to that. And once again, thank you for all your time. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your support. I look forward to talking to you again real soon.